do that. Um, it's good to be with you all again this morning. As you remember, uh, we'll be in Genesis 12. We started that last week. and I'm suffering from a gash on my finger here, but as anybody with five-year-olds know, uh, any Paw Patrol, um, I've got Chase kind of keeping my, my finger good and tight here, so uh, hopefully I won't bleed all over my Bible. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's pray and we'll, we'll jump in here. Father, we thank you uh, that we are your covenant people, not because of good works that we have done, but because of your mercy and strictly your mercy that you've shown to us. We thank you for another day of rest and gladness this Lord's Day. We pray that you would feed our souls through your word, by your spirit, that you would increase our faith, that you would help us even this morning as we consider Father Abraham and um, as a complex figure that you have given us to teach us, to instruct us. We pray that our hearts would not be stubborn, but we would be instructed by your truth. Uh, so be with us now. Bless this time. Um, allow us to have good fellowship and interaction over your word. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. You turn with me to Genesis 12. Um, you remember last week we looked at the first uh, nine verses of this chapter, one through nine, and <clears throat> and this time we're going to go through ten through verse twenty all the way through the through the chapter and get in the famous words of Paul Harvey the rest of the story. Um, it's kind of dripping with interest here in in, in verses ten through. Through twenty, so I'll go ahead and read these passages, and we'll we'll consider a couple of a couple of practical things that they had to teach us. Hear God's word from Genesis twelve ten through twenty. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai his wife. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Amen. God's word. Um, 
just I told you last week that I have a problem with recommending books, and so I'm going to recommend one right now, and will again probably next week. This is Dale Ralph Davis. He's an Old Testament was an Old Testament professor at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. Great um, Old Testament Hebrew professor, but uh, he wrote this book called Faith of Our Father, and it's on it's on kind of this section 12 through 25 of Genesis. And if you happen to get this book and read it, which I recommend you do, and you see any parallels between what I say and what he says, it's not because Dale Ralph Davis is copying off of me. It's because I am copying off of him. But, um, but yeah, great book. Great, great book. I recommend it to you. So this, this morning, just a couple of things um, that we'll consider. But just first, a recap. Last week, we looked at the first half of, of this chapter, Abram's Call where Yahweh told him to leave his, his, uh, his country, his kindred, and his father's, ha- father's house to go to the land that God would show him. He called him out of uh, paganism. We looked at those two points. That true faith that we learned from, the, from that narrative, the beginning, true faith is, is unfamiliar, or it's unexplainable rather, and second, it's unfamiliar. And uh, we noted how it's, it's unexplainable in that... He was an idolater. He was not a. He was not this good man, sort of on this search for the for Yahweh, the true God, or anything like that. We have we have no reason to believe that he had any other commitments other than to paganism. And yet, God, in His lavish grace, He decides to drop this spiritual atomic bomb on Abram and to to call him to save him and and for he and Sarai to be this this uh, funnel of blessing to the entire created order, um, as Adam and Eve were kind of supposed to be. Um, and so the point being is that there's no good reason why, if we're kind of bringing this down to, down to us and, and application, there's no good reason why you are a Christian sitting here today um, and, and your neighbor or your family or whoever who's not a believer that you know there's no good reason why you get in and they are out because spiritually speaking, you're on level playing ground. You're both pre-conversion. You're both God-hating idolaters. Uh, that's, that's harsh, but that's the way that the Scripture paints things. I mean, read Ephesians. Man, it's almost like pre-Christ, the way that Paul describes unconverted people, it's like they're spiritual zombies. Just the living dead. It's it, it's a it's it's a bleak picture, and that's who we all were pre-conversion. And so, in that sense, it's unexplainable, humanly speaking. Second, we we noted last week that it's unfamiliar because of the gravity of the call. Remember, like we are natural flakes. We you know just giving up on things and commitments is the air that we breathe in the twenty first century. And yet there's this call here to leave everything um, that Abram knew and, and the comforts of, of these three spheres, these concentric circles of country, kindred, father's house, and then go follow this new deity, Yahweh. Um, it reminds us that when I was 15, I read, um, I had just gotten converted, and I started reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of all people, Uh, because my pastor gave me this book, and it's called The Cost of Discipleship. This German Lutheran theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
And I didn't understand probably 90% of what was in that book, but the one, the money shot in that little work that stuck with me and, and just sticks with me forever, will stick with me forever, is where there's that famous quote where he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the, that's the money shot, Bonhoeffer's money shot in The Cost of Discipleship. When he calls a man, he bids him come and die. And um, as a newly converted teenager, that just, that was like a lightning bolt through my heart. <laughs> I understood what that meant. That squared with the, the faith of the, that's of the Matthew 16, 24 variety. If, if when Christ, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's unexplainable faith is. And Abram exhibited this kind of faith um, against all odds, this bold faith that doesn't square with the norms of our society in the face of of uncertain circumstances. Um, So that's last week. Well, now we get to this new section. And we we get the rest of the story. And one of the things that I love about it, you just have to love the, the way the Bible sets this up. Right? Like... It's not hiding anything from you. One of the tragedies of being a parent of three little boys is that, I mean, maybe little girls are different. I have no clue. You, you guys can, can teach me. Um, but I think it is almost impossible to get to the bottom of a little boy fight. There is this infinite regress of causes that you just you cannot get to the bottom of, like to figure out exactly what happened, who did what, who's to blame. There's just it's just you can't do it. You have to be a professor of modal logic to to kind of even get the broad strokes of a little boy fight. I'm, I'm convinced, um, but you have to love God's style here in the Bible, in the way that he's, he's pieced together these narratives because he's not hiding anything from you. He's telling you exactly, exactly how it's happening. He's not trying to sell you this phony bag of goods or bleach any of the details out, the sordid details. So um, that's what we have. We have sordid details in Genesis uh, 12, 10 through 20. And so Abram last week, who's this... Man of faith, right? The man of faithfulness. Well, now he's the man who lacks faith. He's the man of faithlessness. And he's still, he's still teaching us. So, um, he's given us an example to avoid. Last week was example to follow. This is uh, the example to avoid. There's a couple of things to draw out of this passage um, that I hope resonates. It resonates with me weekly. Um, it's the mystery of providence and the fickleness of faith. Okay, mystery of providence, the fickleness of faith, and this whole what we've been trying to do last week, today, and then uh, next week, Lord willing, is is consider Abram's narrative through the lens of faith and doubt. And so here we see we see those things: mystery of providence and doubt, doubting faith, kind of fickleness of faith. Um, so look with me at verse ten. It reads like a good novel in light of what's just happened. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. Catch the redundancy. There was a famine in the land. He's going down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. 
Um, that's purposeful. Anytime we we see those repetitions, we know, you know, how we're supposed to read scripture. That's important. It's emphasizing that it's emphasizing something that should make us go, wait, what? Because what did God just promise Abram? He comes off the heels of this. What did he just promise him? Land, right? He just promises him land, and then and then now there's a famine making him have to leave what? Land. And so we should, we should stop, and it's, it's enough, the way that the narrative is, is pieced together, it's enough to make us go, wait, wait, that doesn't square with what he's just promised. He's promised posterity, the father of a great nation, and you've got to have land to have a great nation, presumably, and, and then now there's a famine here. Um, this is situational irony. We should be struck with it a little bit. I wonder how much this would have shaken, potentially shaken Abram's faith. You think about that. He would have just come off of this zealous high. I don't know what it would have been like to have that kind of encounter in the history of redemption, the history of, of, of continuing of revelation, the development of revelation, to have that kind of encounter with Yahweh. To to feel these promises, to to sense that these things are true. The zealous high that he would have, he must have had with the Lord speaking directly to him, telling him to go to this place. I'm sure it was ecstatic to some degree. But yet now, he's finding out that the land that he thought, likely that he thought that he was going to get, it's dry as a bone forcing him to have to leave it. It just doesn't make sense. So what, what gives here? Why is this happening? I have no clue. I have no clue why it's happening. So let's jump to principle, right? Let's jump to application point. That something that, that we desperately need to learn. That there is a mystery to God's providence. I wonder, I wonder if we believe that. If we're, if we're constantly kind of keeping that truth before us, because I think if we do, these, these two truths really of, of the mystery of providence and the fickleness of faith, I think it really acts as guardrails to keep us from becoming bitter and hard in the Christian life. There's mystery to providence. We have, what is God up to? Why is He letting things fall out the way He's letting them fall? I have no clue. Don't we often we often buy into this error that if we are convinced that God is doing something, if we are convinced that He's calling us to do something, we just we're just like, oh, that's just so God, right? It's so God. Everything is working out like this path emerged. All of the roadblocks were just cleared out of the way. You know, that's just what God does. And I'm not saying that God doesn't work like that. And praise the Lord when He does. Those are, those are kind providences for sure. And He does work that way. But not all the time. And when we forget that, when we forget that God has mystery, there's this great mystery in His dealings with, with all of us, all of His children that protects us. Think about, I mean, I'm sure you can think of examples in your own life, but... Think of a couple of examples in Scripture. Okay, so Jesus, the Lord Jesus, 
Right after he's coming out of the waters of baptism, and then what? We have the Spirit descending in the, in the form of a dove. We've got this great Trinitarian picture. We've got the Father speaking from heaven. What does the Father say? This is my Son whom I love, I delight in Him. Think of in Christ and His humanity. Think of the reassurance, the comfort, the strength that He would have had from that, from that moment. Coming out of the waters of baptism. Then, then what does Mark tell us? Euthus in Greek. Immediately. This is forceful immediately. It says the Spirit doesn't just kind of hold Him by the hand and take Him to the wilderness. It drives him out into the wilderness. This violent kind of image a bit. Driving the Lord Jesus out into the wilderness. For what purpose? To, to have a retreat? No, to be tempted and fight with Satan for 40 days. With, with, no, with no sustenance, right? He's in the wilderness. Think about the new Adam. In that image, Christ in the wilderness. When, when, when Satan came to the first Adam, where does he come to, to fight with the first Adam? In a garden of delight, where he's got everything he could, he could ask for. It's paradise. And yet the first Adam fails. And then the second Adam does war with Satan in the anti-garden and defeats, and defeats Satan. Hands down defeats him. But think of the contrast. That comforting experience and all of a sudden Christ is driven out into the wilderness to fight Satan. Let's think of another one. Um, Paul. He talks about being caught up into the third heaven. What ecstasy that might have been like. It's so much so where Paul says, that I can't even speak about it. I can't even speak these things. Um, and then, what does he say he receives immediately after that? A thorn in the flesh. I was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited, he said. To keep him from being arrogant and prideful. This thorn in the flesh after this ecstatic experience. There are all kind of examples of providences in Scripture that just don't seem to make sense to us. And I'm sure that we could pull similar kind of scenarios from our own life if we were to think about it. But the, the, the point here to, to, to draw out is that we never know what the Lord is. Like, we never know fully all the reasons why, all the reasons God has for why He's allowing our life to fall out the way it's fallen out. But what are we doing in those circumstances? Are we, are we getting, letting those circumstances drive us to doubt? Drive us to doubt what? To doubt His goodness, likely. Um, uh, I probably shared this before. A friend of mine, she was, uh, she was in high school, had, um, was trying to figure out her faith, trying to, trying to make it her own. It had grown up a Christian, not really sure of of, of all these things, of if it was really her own faith or not. She was trying to figure out if she was buying into it. Then all of a sudden her dad gets sick and dies really fast. And um, which just, which makes everything that much worse, right? In terms of settling her faith commitments. And then years later, 
somebody asked her, well, what, what did you do? Like, how in the world did you not just jump into atheism? And she said, I had to make the conscious effort to believe that God was good and not evil. She had to like tell herself, no, God is good. God is good. She had to retrain herself in a sense from... Her heart was wanting to say otherwise based off of these circumstances. But she had to train herself to believe that these foundational truths that we're always struggling to believe that God is actually good. He's, he's actually not trying to ruin my life. He's, he, he really has a purpose for this, though I have no clue what that is. But I can, I can hang my hat at the end of the day, every single day, that He is holy, righteous, and good. I think that's something that I'm fighting every day, aren't you? For as high as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We looked at last Sunday, God is not like us. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. He's above all of the the change in circumstance and all of the, the fickleness that we have. He doesn't have a nature like we have. And His providence is mysterious. Let's think of the second point, fickleness in our faith. Um, so the fervor we saw last week, This any questions, by the way, before we move on to the second point about any of that or, or comments? Providence is mysterious. I mean, we could talk days about that. Shout, shout out if you want to. <laughs> You're not going to scare me. Um, fickleness of faith. So this, this fervor, this zeal that we saw from, this godly devotion we saw from Abram last week. Um, we didn't talk about it last week, but I wanted to make mention of verses 6 through 7 here. Uh, we kind of talked about it in the, in the discussion time, but, uh, but I wanted to walk through it just a minute, so if you could look there has something that's... It, it, it seems like an insignificant detail, but it's not. Look at verses 6 and 7 of twelve, chapter 12. It says, When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. All right. So we're introduced to this place, this land called Shechem, this strange mention of a tree. Like, why? Why is there all of a sudden a tree? Oh, okay, well, there's a tree. Um, the oak of, of Moray. This is Canaanite territory. The, uh, Moses tells us here, Canaanite territory. Well, Scholars, different scholars have, has no, have noted, and, and you'll find this if you read Dale Ralph Davis's book and his work on Genesis. But um, scholars have noted that most likely what this is referring to is this this spot in the ancient Near Eastern world, in this part of the world, that was referred to as the terebinth of the teacher, like the, the tree of the teacher. And essentially, this is a spot that pagans would go to, some would pilgrimage to, and they would receive new revelations, fresh revelations from their deities, from their 
you know, their huge pantheon of gods that they would serve. Um, they would go there and supposedly have these fresh encounters, these revelations um, with the pagan gods. Well, isn't it interesting what Abram does here that, that instead of worshiping the false deity at the terebinth of the teacher, at the, the oak of Mamre, Abram goes, and you see what it says at the end of 7? So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He built there an altar to the Lord. Abram goes there to build an altar to Yahweh. In essence, worshiping Him right in front of the heart of pagan idolatry. You see what he's doing? This is, this is public faith. This is, um, this is public theology. This is, this is apologetics. Is what's happening. It's evangelism. He's setting up an altar to Yahweh to say, actually, you need to look over here. Look away from that oak. Look at the altar. Think of that, the zeal, the guts, that, that the spiritual guts that would have taken to do that, to go to that place. Canaanites are already in the land. This is a place known for fresh revelation from new pagan deities. And then Abram says, nope. I'm building an altar to the one true God. He's on fire. He's on fire for Jesus, so to speak. But then, famine comes, Egypt comes, and then fear comes. He falters. So what was, what was once so certain to him feels like a crapshoot. Because we know... We know by the way that the Scripture t- teaches us about Egypt, what it calls Egypt throughout, the, throughout the, uh, the canon of Scripture is the house of bondage. Egypt becomes shorthand for running back to your idols <coughs> in later narratives. So things, the promises don't feel right, like the, the suspenseful music starts, everything feels like it's just an utter crapshoot, and, and he starts going, man, maybe I've missed something. Maybe, I don't know, maybe this isn't how it's supposed to be. Maybe I've dreamed this up. You can imagine him saying, like, you know what, I, I should have known. I should have known. I, I curse myself for being surprised. Stupid, Abraham. You're stupid. Why are you doing this? That would be in my heart. I don't know about you, but it seems likely that if we're going to kind of pathologize this a bit, um, it could definitely be something that he's struggling with as well. Maybe God's not who I really thought He was. I've got to figure out a way out of all of this myself. What am I going to do? I'm going to go to. I'm going to go to Egypt. I'm going to go to a place where there's there's a lot of stuff. I'm going to leave this place. And uh, I've got to figure out a way to not die in Egypt because, because Pharaoh is going to see my smoking hot wife and he's going to take her and I'm going to be, I've got to figure out something. And so have you ever, have you just ever been there? Just think of the, just Think of the layers of that scenario and think of how relatable they are. Of course, 
you don't have the same exact specific contours to your to your call to faithfulness to Yahweh in this life in the 21st century. But at the root, the struggle, the war with faith and doubt, it's it's pretty similar. Things just don't seem to be working out the way that I thought. Maybe this stuff isn't real like I thought it was. What what do I do here? I've got to figure out a way to I gotta I gotta dream up a way to, to, to get me out of this. It's it's all up to me. It's all up to me. This is so relatable because we all tend to bail in the same ways at the root. You pull back a few layers and you can see it. This is not some super esoteric um, experience that's, that's only peculiar to the patriarch here. This is, this is, I, he's given as an example to teach us, Romans says, Paul says to us. All this was written for our instruction. And so what do we learn? We learn that faith, it's so precarious and fickle if it's left up to your own strength and sheer force of will to keep it, to keep it sound and solid. So how does God respond? What does God do after, after Abram says, I've got to figure out a way to get out of this. I'm going to tell Pharaoh that this beautiful woman is my wife. As an aside, this is the first... This is the first um, data that we have about Sarah, it sounds pretty sweet, right? You are a beautiful woman. But it's ultimately self-serving. It's not to compliment her. It's ultimately self-serving. So I've got to tell her, I've got to lie. He implicates his wife in this deception. He, he makes her, essentially, he makes her susceptible to sexual defilement from Pharaoh. And you know what else happens? He does the same exact thing in Exodus 20. I mean, in Genesis 20. He does the same exact thing. He falls into the same exact trap of unbelief. But there it's interesting because it's clear that, that the king did not touch Sarah. But here it's not. It's the height of lack of faith and lack of wisdom. So how does God respond? Look at verses 20, uh, 17 through 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And then if you were to look at verse 13, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. So what does God do? Does God just kind of rain down punishment? He does. But, but not on Abram. <laughs> he, he, he inflicts Pharaoh with these plagues. Even though Abram is the one who concocted this ruse. Right? Yet, Abram is the one who's shielded from the wrath of God. Does that sound familiar, Christian? Who is... 
Who is shielded from the wrath of God in a new covenant era? An old covenant era. All the old covenant believers as well. Christians. Filthy, wretched Christians who, if we're, again, if we're reading Ephesians 1 and 2, are spiritual zombies, the living dead, enslaved to the passions and to the desires of God-hating. Those are the ones who are shielded from the wrath of God. It's, it's amazing. Evidently, though Abram forgot all those promises at the beginning that came last week, where God says, look, Abram, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless bless you. You're going to be a blessing to the entire created order. Um, I'm going to bless those who bless you even. And, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. He forgot that. God didn't. This, this gentlemanly way that God deals with His people. It's, it's so kind. It's like he doesn't, even, he doesn't even bring it up. He doesn't even remark here. You, you don't find another aspect of this narrative where God's going, hey, Abram, remember when you did that with Pharaoh? You, you got to grow up, man. That's not... You can't... It's, it's just sheer grace. He just moves him right along. He protects him. He moves him right along. So, even after this. So, is Abram's spiritual house after this, is it all in order? Does he ever have doubts again? Was this enough just to fix his doubts permanently? No way. Absolutely not. In fact, when you get to, um, when you get to chapter 17, <laughs> not to be too crass here, but to prop up Abram's faith again, what does God do? God marks up the man's genitals with circumcision to the point where Abram can't even daily use the bathroom, uh, the ancient Near Eastern bathroom, without being reminded of the promises of God. That'll preach. That's, that's with you forever. That God is continually propping up this man all throughout his life. Doesn't he do the same with us? When you come in these doors and you sing with the people of God and you pray, and you, and you listen attentively to the Word. and Doesn't the Lord just prop you up again, reminding you fresh blessings, fresh reminders of His mercies, feeding your faith little by little by little, all throughout your life? That's what He's doing. Do you have doubts? Yes. Every single one of us. We're going we're gonna to struggle with doubt in the Christian life until we're... Till the day that we take our last breath. But rock solid certainty in, in all, in everything, it's a myth. And I think Flannery O'Connor, this is one of my favorite quotes from her. She says it wisely. She says, When we get our spiritual house in order, we'll be dead. This goes on. You arrive at enough certainty to be able to make your way but it is making it in darkness. Don't expect faith to clear everything up for you because it is trust, not certainty. It's a very Abrahamic <coughs> statement from my perspective. This, God is, is not after, praise Him for this, God is not after your rock-solid certainty of everything, but He's after your allegiance. 
in the midst of crazy circumstances that make absolutely no sense to you. But yet, providence is mysterious. Our faith is fickle. But He is trustworthy. And He keeps us, though we falter over and over again. May these truths just ever root themselves. The truths of faith and doubt in our Father of the faith. May they root themselves deeper in us and help us to interpret our own life. Right? Any other thoughts? about chapter 12. What do y'all think about the... I don't know, just shoot back here about giving up one's wife to a king because you're afraid of her beauty. It's kind of bizarre. Right. It's just weird because you're like, did he? I mean, I'm sure Abraham was like, hey, I did this twice. And you think he thought that that was a good thing? That's why he <laughs> told his son, hey, maybe you should try this when you get married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an unusual thing, obviously, in the sense of you don't think about what these folks were doing when they created their harems. Sure. And that they had the prerogative to take all the most beautiful women in the land, mm-hmm. as we saw with Esther. And what do you do about that? You go into a land, and they know that's yeah. the policy. Right. He had to go into the Egypt to survive and provide for his herds. Yes. And so. What do you do? I'm going there, so my heritage, my family, my flock can survive. But they're going to take my life. Oh, it's it's an seemingly impossible circumstance. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, and I don't want to pretend that like, oh, stupid Abram, look what he did. No, like, I mean, yeah, it was a stupid thing to do, but, man... I don't even have a category for a struggle like that. Um, you know, all the pressures of that of that culture and that society and the fears, the different kind of fears that he would struggle with related to that. Um, yeah. You know, God, I, I think in a way allowed Abram to, to make that decision. What you said because he wasn't. His faith was weak in that he chose to go to Egypt as opposed to take the promise yeah. land that God promised him. But a message in here that I saw was that his decision to have a lie about his wife, and I'm just trying to think through this, but how we do sometimes when we try to justify the things that we do. Mm-hmm. What does it cost other people? It costs Pharaoh all these plagues. Yeah. It costs a lot of times within ourselves we can justify because of our own human nature mm-hmm. why we did something. Right. As opposed to really looking at, at 
what God would want us to see. But we'll justify it and then we we penalize other people and we maybe cause them to you know Pharaoh didn't have a, a faith event. Right. He, he, he had all these plagues and he just right. said, look, we got to get out of this. I think it's interesting, kind of just related to, to that little section, how the pagan king is the one who's calling Abram to the carpet of righteousness, so to speak. Like, why, like what are you thinking? That's, that's essentially, you know, we, we can kind of, it seems to have that flavor. Like, what are you thinking that you would, that you would do this? She's your wife. Yeah, you. Uh, just, uh, Jeff Twain notes that she is his half sister. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's yeah. like, <laughs> he's trying to tell a half truth. Oh, of course. Of course. He's not, he's not lying about it, really, but you know, he's, he's, yeah. he's feeling guilty about lying <laughs> about giving his wife up. Right. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like the uh, and and World War II, the the men who would um, to, to enlist in the war. They would. They had to be whatever. I guess over eighteen, and they would. Um, they would write if they were under eighteen. They would write a, on a sheet of paper over eighteen, fold it up, put it under their boot, so that they could say, "Yeah, I'm over eighteen. Right? I mean, it's silly, but we have record of, of, of some of that, so that they, in good conscience, could at least like tell sort of a, a half truth. That's that's kind of the, the deal that that Abram's doing. It's kind of cute. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah cool yeah and you know we don't we're not given the full explanation for sure. Abraham Abraham making this decision of course we do have the commentary in Genesis later about Joseph's brothers you intended it for evil but God intended it for good mm-hmm. so whatever Abraham's at this point intentions were how he came to this decision Obviously, mixed motivations. He seemed to have envisioned what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, this is going to turn out for good for me. No. And we're going to survive through this. So he had a weird sort of faith, you might say. God's going to bless this regardless of my bad decision. Uh, and, and you know, that's what he was thinking. He was sort of right. Yeah. So, uh, but God, you know, is faithful even when we're faithless. Yeah. And we might say, well, if Abraham had just really trusted God, he would have, he might have stayed in the land and got miraculous revived for him, or he might mm-hmm. have gone to Egypt that said, yeah, she's my wife. They want to take her. God will protect me some way mm-hmm. from that. And I'm sure he thought about all these things. Mm-hmm. Probably did. But uh, you're right. Trying to second guess Abram and all of his uh, seemingly deceit here mm-hmm. uh, is is tough. I mean, we've got a president just impeached, and part of the answer that was well, the president had mixed motives. <coughs> and so you can't judge him on a single motive because you can't know that. True. So, uh, you know, in Abram's situation, 
Abraham is, of course, you can't even know Abraham, the father of mm -hmm. our faith. And even the father of our faith, of course, was at times faithless. True. And of course, that's, we're told about that in Hebrews right. 11 as well. Great men of faith. Mm. But when you look at every one of them practically, we see great failures. Yeah. Uh, Michael Horton um, has this quote that I love where he just says that the Bible is not a is not this uh, cast of characters that are all heroes. It's a cast of moral misfits. And I think that that's, that's true here is that we have to we have to recognize that. And that's really that's that's the comfort, right? Like the comfort is that all of us are such mixed bags, uh, are such riddled with faith and doubt, and uh, yeah. All right. Thank you all.